You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to a wide community of creatives across disciplines who challenge ideas on race and identity at a time when identity politics is at the forefront of our cultural landscapes. I'm Lou Menser, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week, I chat with Nikisha Breeze, an African-American Assyrian artist, painter, sculptor, performance artist and teacher. For Nikisha, art making is the highest form of resistance and resilience. The intersectionality she carries as an intersex queer black mother has given her art its own voice. Nikisha was raised in the rural northwest of the States in a family of 10 brothers and sisters, and she's experienced racism, poverty, homophobia, misogyny, and classism throughout her life. All of this becomes the foundation of the work that she makes. I talked with Nikisha as she was traveling between her home in New Mexico to Ghana to participate in a monumental sculpture project with award-winning Ghanaian artist Kwame Bamfo, which seeks to use mostly sculpture to tell the story of African heritage and ancestral honouring. As a quick aside, I'll be taking a short break over the summer to spend time with family and prepare season two. I'll see you in September. The, the project is called the Inkim Kin installation and um, Kwame has been working on it, it for the last five years and with a projected five more years of sculpture um, to, to go. Right now, um, basically the project itself is a huge ancestral honoring and historical journey project. So um, it'll be placed on a, a 25 acre piece of land. So you'll be you know, physically walking through this uh, living journey of the African body um, from tribal Africa um, all the way through the transatlantic slave trade um, and then sort of coming back around through the various diasporic bodies into the return to traditional Africa and contemporary African um, life. And so it's a very uh, interesting sort of circular as well as meandering sculptural um, project that he's created. Mm-hmm. And um, and my, my work coming in will be one, to, to learn and to, to practice, you know, in the uh, methodologies that he's doing and, you know, working with hyper-realistic sculpture, clay sculpture, and then with the casting into cement and bronze. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the whole project is quite extensive. Right now, um, as far as I know, you know, before arriving there, he's created over 2,000 um, heads, each mm-hmm. one individually sculpted with all of their emotional and you know, tribal affiliations and, and spiritual, you know, presence in the bodies, in the mm. faces and heads. And then he'll be working, you know, over these next years, creating all of the bodies and mm. the rest of the infrastructure. It's going to be such an amazing project. Even just thinking about it, let alone seeing it or being part of it, I just can't imagine how huge this is going to be in your in your life um, as an artist. I read a quote about your personal connection with constructs of race, where you said, I grew up in an all-white community in a mixed and light-skinned family, so I have this very interesting relationship to my own blackness, but mostly as a non-issue. Now, that resonated very much with me 
um, as a as a mixed race person. Uh, over here, interestingly, in the UK, some new statistics have just been released on different art disciplines within the UK, what groups and communities engage and produce art um, the most. And I was I was pleased to see that the group that identified um, as from a mixed racial background were the most engaged in arts practice across all disciplines. Hmm. Now that I, I know that my own journey as a photographer and a writer um, has always stemmed from my search um, or looking into identity and the constructs of race also. Um, but I wondered if these statistics reflected that perhaps it's our drive to explore identity outside the social constructs that are placed upon us. And I'm very interested in how people from mixed backgrounds gravitate towards the arts as a tool of self-expression. And I wondered, when did you first become conscious of your relationship with your blackness and with race as a personal identifier in terms of age? And when did you start to explore it? Hmm. That's a, just a great question and a really, you know, interesting um fact around the, the prolific nature of, of mixed race pe- people in the arts. Um, I like hearing that as well. It's pleasing to me. Mm. Um, but and it is it is an interesting question and important for me. Um, you know, I as a girl, I mean, race has always been I say it was a non-issue, but, you know, it, it truly was always a part of my experience growing up, especially growing up in a, you know, all white, you know, neighborhood and school system and and having my family, as I said, quite mixed. I have Mm -hmm. 10 brothers and sisters and Mm -hmm. in my, in my family, I'm the only one that is dark, dark skin. Um, My, my other, I have brothers and sisters who are, you know, a little lighter, they're, you know, a quarter black or, you know, (laughs) a little less. And so, you know, they had sometimes an easier time passing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was the only one in my, my family that didn't have that luxury really and yeah. so I, I was you know exposed to the uniqueness of my race as a young girl all the time you know people would you know the racist jokes in in you know primary school of you know oh you drank too much chocolate milk you know that's why you're so different and okay. you know things like this so I it was always pointed out to me my difference mm-hmm. but I found myself as a girl actually interestingly I think working to make it a non-issue um, by becoming really extravagant in every other way that I could, other than my skin color. I would wear crazy clothes or right. do really weird things to my hair, or I would, you know, you know, one t- year I wore all my clothes inside out and backwards. You know, yeah. I would, I was like, you know, if you're gonna make fun of me, make fun of me for something I have control over yeah. and not something that I don't, you know. And so I, I found myself working in a space of sort of resistance from a very young age in ways that I couldn't even name at that time, mm. you know, and um, as I grew older, um, I think, you know, I, I kept that trajectory of really never really pointing out or making making anything of my race, even though, of course, I was, you know, I recognized it and understood it. I, you know, I gravitated towards, um, you know, spirituality and, you know, these kind of alternative practices, mm-hmm. you know, and things like this, um, as a way, I don't know, to, to, to make myself different, but not, not yeah. accentuate my difference that was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really came actually after becoming a mother, 
yeah really really late in life mm-hmm. where I started to 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 really take it and say you know what actually this is important for me to speak directly yeah. about who I am and where I where I come from and how do I show and teach my children to be proud mm-hmm. of this you know this beauty that we carry mm-hmm. and so it was really in my 20s that I started to um focus on my identity and the identities that I carry as as I carried them forward with my children Mm. Um, you know so that was the beginning for me of looking at that and it started with me sort of breaking down the structures of internalized racism that I had sort of ingested my whole life yes you know small things where you like how I felt about my skin in the summertime when my skin would get really dark. You know, yes. I always thought I hated it. I was like, oh, it just like changes the way I look and I don't like it. I don't like the darkness. And, yes. and then I realized that, oh, wait, this is actually a, a deeper racism that you've, you've brought into yourself of thinking somehow your darkness is no longer as beautiful. Yes. You know, what, what is that about? You know? <laughs> wow, that really <laughs> resonates. Yes, that really <laughs> resonates. Especially the um, becoming a mother past what you said because really I didn't process so much past primary school age and it was only again when I was much older as a mother that it was at that point for me too that um, I realised how much I had internalised and that I had to start to have these conversations with myself and understand um, how I'd felt about all of the years that had come before um, and how I was going to talk to my daughter and raise my daughter. Um, uh, and and it, it took on an urgency, you know, it, mm-hmm. it took on an urgency that I discussed these things with her and I, I completely supported her in her identity journey. And that's why I love talking to artists like you that are also really given some deep thought to these issues. But your art is an act of conscious resistance. I'm intrigued that you have quoted that the life of an artist must ask questions of itself. I'm really interested in the process that artists go through. Is there a tension between this tangible and physical act of conscious resistance through creating work and the more introspective questioning of your life as an artist? For example, what questions are you asking right now as you embark on this next phase of your work? So I'm just interested in the, not the tension, but the connection between your personal self and then taking that to your physical art? Yes, again, such a wonderful question. I, there, there is, you know, always that tension. And it feels like, um, for me personally, as I look into like what that means really to ask questions of myself all the time, it's, it's very much like the, the, the race piece where I have to go a little further into, you know, what is actually creating, um, you know, this, yeah, this inner tensions, like I said, just like asking myself, why do you really think that you look ugly when you're tanned? (laughs) What is that actually? You know, that's the same types of questioning I feel as an artist I'm asking all the time. I have to say, you know, like, like especially when I'm making work that's around race, you know, I have to say, okay, is this, is this me still sort of regurgitating racial identity questions or is it, are these real questions in my body? And what is that? You know, because there's so there is so much it's so easy to fall into these sort of scripts of, you know, of, of racial you know, of resistance of, you know, these, these stories mm-hmm. and and even looking at like 
the like how am I representing you know the black story outside mm-hmm. of even my own imagination of what it's like yeah you know either there's a lot of t- because as a mixed race person my experience has been so different growing up mm-hmm. you know and I and I sometimes you know doubt I do I doubt myself all the time and say can you really speak for the black voice mm-hmm. actually because you didn't really grow up what seems like in a black environment, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then I say, well, what does a black environment mean? Yes. And, <laughs> you know, and how, you know, how is my, my voice as a black person, you know, really different than those that have grown up in, a, you know, maybe an all black, you know, neighborhood mm-hmm. and is mine less valid because I didn't, or, yes. you know, I, I have to really look at that all the time and see, and I, and my answer always comes to, you know, no, your, your voice is necessary and yes. is valid. And your perspective on black life and black culture may be even more important because you didn't grow up in those in those environments. Yes. You know, you have a, a, a different perspective on it and also possibly a bigger urgency yes. around, you know, around its importance. Um, and so those are the types of questions that come up for me when I say we have to ask questions of ourselves all the time. It's, mm-hmm. it's mostly about like, you know, really doubting what you what you think <laughs> and yes. what you believe and yes. and saying you know how much is this of this is actually fed to me through the master narrative yes. and how much of it is really emerging out of a, a genuine a genuine need to to understand more and know more yeah. you know so so for me I end up you know right now you know my questioning you know, I'm, I'm asking myself a lot about my return to this return to Africa. Mm. You know, what, what does that actually feel like in my body? You know, Mm. in the end, my questions have to also move out of my mind and into my physical and somatic relationship Mm. to them. So, so as I come into this trip to Africa and this journey to do the sculptural project, you know, I'm asking, you know, things like, um, you know, what, what am I actually looking for? What am I romantic? What am I romanticizing yes. about about Africa? You know, um, what am I what am I afraid of? Because I, I have feel fear in my body, oh, you, know, you know, and and where is that fear arising from? You yes. know, is it is it a fear out of, you know, yeah, just a, a cultural shock, a feeling of a cultural difference that I'm not you know ready for? Is it a fear of a, a deeper um, awakening that I think might come? Am I romanticizing even that idea of some type of awakening or some type of magical moment that will happen when I go to Africa? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. there's all of this that comes up in my questions personally. And yeah. then then those, you know, do translate then back into my my art because mm-hmm. my art ends up giving me the answers, yeah. you know, when, yeah. That's and, so interesting. I, what came to mind when you were saying that um, it made me think, I wonder if also what could be coming up are unresolved, because um, some of these are conscious, but some of these processes are completely subconscious, right? And we can feel yes. them, and, but it's, it can take a while before we can understand them. And there, there might be some res- resolutions of old processing that you're just continuing and you can feel that rising up again as you embark on it it must be such um an interesting phase for you i love another quote of yours i am a black woman a mother queer and alive these truths weave themselves throughout my work 
Now, a tribute to my mother um, came to mind here, and I adore that work, which was an installation where three vulvas erupted from discarded fragments of Western patriarchal classics, Homer's Odyssey and the American Heritage Dictionary, for example. Tribute to my mother is a large-scale work that speaks to the power and the presence of the feminine as a force for social and political change. So your, this work shows resistance on the one hand and, it, and it's hopeful and assertive on the other. How has the cycle of mothering and being mothered informed your work? We've spoken about how being a mother did raise these questions again. Hmm. I am. Um... My my mother, you know, is, is an amazing amazing woman. I I always say she's a saint, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I and I would if I could canonize her, I would. <laughs> you know, she's an incredibly powerful woman and has um you know raised ten children and twenty five mm-hmm. grandchildren and wow. you know, has has some you know nine or ten great grandchildren at this point. My mother's amazing matriarch and um and so witnessing her and being in the presence of you know being mothered with her I mean it's doing all of that you know I hardly saw her truthfully because she worked so hard she worked so much she gave so much this this unending level of sacrifice um you know and at the same time she you know even of course she was tired and overwhelmed Mm. it was it was a second it was like the, the natural way there's always the of course of course I will take care of my children of course I will give and this that quality you know of beingness that is so dedicated to the to the supporting and serving of others has informed me in my in my body in this way that you know it shows up in all of the work that I do in all of my art you know that that piece you know tribute to my mother mm. um you know I it really is it's a tribute to to the mother you know to the great feminine but it really also to my mother because what I felt in that particular piece was this um, undeniable emergence of one of these vulvic forms, mm. you know, out in, in, through any circumstance. So we can look at the circumstance being that of like the, the overarching patriarchy that will and uh, continues to diminish and, and make invisible not only fem voice, feminine voices, but ultimately all voices that are other. And, and so that way of like breaking through all obstacles to 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 show the generative beauty mm-hmm. of being and and the the, the the vulvas really are that like the source the, the foundation of life yes. this place where 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 we come through in our purity mm-hmm. and in in our original nature and in our in our beauty and so that power of holding to you know the 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 most foundational form of being in the, in the shape of the, in the vulva you know that birth birthing um, was reflective of my feeling that from my mother of, of really persevering inside all things, you know, and that's a very feminine quality yes. you know, to persevere and to continue to give and to love and to return to this place of, um, yeah, of, of generosity, yes. uh, you know, is, is something that's so beautiful to me. And, and so it was a tribute to my mother because of its, its quality of, of power and resilience outside of anything. And you've said that you are process driven. And I was reminded of the processes of creating work when I was reading about 108 death masks, which is um, one of your 
pieces. And the work began as a, a deep prayer for the reclamation of your ancestral voices. Um, and you said that you wanted to find a way to honour your ancestors in a physical form and you wanted to feel their faces in your hands and touch them with a tenderness that could somehow relieve even one moment of the pain they may have felt. And it's such a moving piece. And what strikes me about this is your expression of love and loss and of spiritual aspiration and of tactile reality. Um, and it instantly connected me to a, a feeling and thoughts about my late father um, and how the last time that I got to, to touch him still resonates in my senses. You know, I see a picture of him and I feel I can feel the energy in in my fingers from when I last touched him and it seems like your definition of an artist involves total emotional and tactile engagement um do you have a tangible physical sensation of healing through this work um and how do you process that energy um and the energy represented in this piece because you're feeling this right in your bodies Yes, that, you know, the, the integration of everything, it, it, it's so easy, you know, especially when we're dealing with concept based work to get mm. really caught up in the head, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and the ideas of what it is you're trying to do or trying to say or trying to make this whole concept based piece is, is so it's such a, it's a trap really for so many of us artists that think deeply. And, yeah. um, and for me, you know, my way to mitigate that is has been always really to, to try and understand how I can root it into my body, into the nonverbal space. You know, I say before into that somatic space in my body, like how do I actually, you know, grow more sensitive to what I'm trying to do outside of language and outside of my ideas of language. And so everything I do, all of my work, you know, does have a, a very, a really kind of structured process piece that is based in the body. Yes. Um, you know, and so um, with this, the 108 death masks, I, you know, began the process, the physical processing of what was happening, you know, because the work was um, like each mask, there's 108 masks and each one was sculpted not from any photos or models or, or forms. I'd had no, nothing to go on. I, I made the process you know, for me, very much about trying to tap into a form of ancestral memory, mm. where I was trying to remember the faces of these ancestors that I've never seen or felt or known, mm. you know, and what does that look like to remember something that you've never known or felt or seen in this physical body, mm. you know, and that, that meant for me, um, you know, having, as I said, no reference point, and beginning just with the clay itself, you know, and from the very, very first step of it, it was saying, I, I am only really a channel to what's coming through. Yes. You know, my, I'm going to allow my physical body to, um, I'm going to learn how to trust my actions in my physical body as the knowledge. Yeah. So, you know, I would begin with just plain clay that had no, um, in essence, no marks on it at all. I'd roll it smooth. And so it could represent, in essence, the beginning of the world and the mm -hmm. beginning of life. Yes. And and then I would utilize, you know, uh, textures, textural things around me. Again, the tactile reality. So I would take things like rough burlap or silks or my fists, or I would take a tree or like a switch, 
you mm. know, thinking of being, you know, whipped with a switch and I would literally whip the clay mm. or I would hit the clay with my fists or I would, you know, lay the, some piece of soft fabric as a form of like a deep, a gift of, of silk, <laughs> you know, yeah. this, these moments into the clay and then the clay would retain those marks, you know, those, those pieces of history. So right away, the re- physicality would be created of that tactile relationship. So the clay is, is having the, the scars of my actions, but also these actions of history. So I felt like I was writing histories into the clay. Yes. You know, through my physical actions that were completely unmeditated, you mm. know, and, and based in the, the physical, you know, and from there, that would continue to inform what would be next. So as that clay you know, I, um, structurally and processed based in this piece, you know, I, my, the, the mind said, well, I can't make this clay. I want this clay one, this historic now artifact of, of clay that I see, I want it to, um, be connected to my bones, to my own body so mm. that I could speak through to my ancestral lines. So I made a structure of my own, you know, skull shape that yeah. I would then lay the clay on so that it would take on a touch of my skull. Mm-hmm. before I began to carve the faces into them mm-hmm. um you know so so just even those little pieces I'm speaking you know are ways that I began to mitigate the physical reality and physical relationship that I had with the work right away mm-hmm. to get myself out of my head yes um and so as the the faces would emerge out of but one that you know the physical bone structure of my own and then the historical markings that I had made you know each face was completely unique and so they yeah. felt like you know, real beings arising out of something that was beyond myself, mm-hmm. you know, and one by one that, you know, they, they were made. And, you know, as I reflect back and see them and touch them now, that piece, I say, you know, I wanted to touch these faces. I wanted to touch them like they didn't come from me. I wanted to see them as, as beings outside. And, and I did, yes. you know, and, and then I was able to develop relationships with them. So, you know, as the pieces, as it was finished the installation was there there's still a relationship I mean I I fed them all rum and tobacco and gave them Uh offerings really like one by one little bits of rum at each of their mouths and you know (laughs) invited invited them to come in you know so I began to create a real relationship with these beings Mm. um you know so it it becomes more than art in that way it becomes something else it becomes a ritual act Mm. um that and that's what engages me as an artist. I feel like if it was just art, I couldn't do it. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't. Like it has to be something that goes beyond that. Mm. And 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 that means I have to get out of my head and get into my body and recognize my cellular, you know, relationship to these things. Yeah. You know. And and one last piece, I know I'm speaking a lot, but mm. it's important because it's um it's another driving force in this in all of my work. Yeah, I, I believe that, um, and and I've called this sort of an Afrofuturist uh, perspective, right. um, meaning that I I really believe that as particularly a, a body from the African diaspora, mm-hmm. you know, um, that we have been severed, you know, from our that, that homeland or that idea of land or place, which yeah. is why also I think mixed race people particularly must are, are like you were saying are so engaged is because there's this freedom that comes with it. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's sort of a reclaiming of what would be a, a devastating truth that of being so severed from our sense of home, culture, land, you know, place, 
you know, wherever we are in the world, yes. you know, we have sort of been severed from from a root and we make do and we, you know, hundreds of years, you know, we, we live in a certain place and of course we reestablish roots. Yes. But there's this this quality of never really having your origin place. Yes. And and, um, and so for me, that severance you know, which I said could look like a, a devastating reality, it actually can be a liberating force because it creates a sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, when we don't have a place, then any place really can be made ours. And when we don't have a sense of time, which is another piece, a devastating piece of the, you know, of, of the tragedy that happened with African peoples is that they were also cut away from their sense of, of lived time, the time of the land, the time mm-hmm. of of you know continuity of a culture and a language and a way that mm-hmm. that that severing of time and place from a body, you know, has now I believe created a sense of it can be a, a form of freedom, where we can live in a timeless, and and spaceless and placeless you know reality and the Afrofuturist movement sort of capitalizes on that idea you know, where the, you know, Afrofuturists will say, well, you know, it's okay. Like we don't have a time, so we'll make any time our time. Let's yeah. create, create a, a stylistic and an artistic image that is, you know, futuristic, yet at the same time tribal, yet at the same time, you know, like outside yeah. of any constructs that we know so far of, mm. of being. Mm. Um, and so from that perspective, I said, all right, well, here's my theory you know, we carry forward intergenerational traumas. Like even though I've been cut from that, that time and place, I'm still carrying cellularly those, those traumas as well as those knowledges um, that they're all inside our bodies and they're coming out in the art. So if that, if that's true, and I believe that time is not linear, it's not just going forward that actually, if I have my own control of time, then I can say time also moves backwards. Can't, can I, in this physical body with my art and with my process, speak backwards through the cells? Mm. You know, can, can I actually make a sculpture of an ancestor and touch that face and imagine that the cell, cellularly in my own cells, that touch can go back and actually physically be touching the face of an ancestor and, and healing them? Can I cross time barriers and, and begin to actually unwind the traumas backwards? And I think it's one of the most moving pieces of work that I can remember seeing for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep on coming back to it. So um, it's for all of us. Thank you so, so much. Um, oh, it's been, thank you. And it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. It really has been wonderful. Your, your questions and engagement are refreshing and, and beautiful. Whoa!